With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. A report says that the San Joaquin Valley water supplies could shrink by 20%. Average annual water supplies for the San Joaquin Valley could decline by 20% come 2040. With shortfalls largely driven by mandates of California's 2014 Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. That's according to a new report from the Public Policy Institute of California. The Institute's policy brief said America's most bountiful farming region faces a future with less water for irrigation. It said nearly 900,000 acres of farmland could be fallowed and almost 50,000 jobs lost without new water system investments and water trading programs. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into our show headlines. H-2A Requirements and Preparations Over time, California producers have utilized the H-2A visa worker program due to shortages in labor. Anna Genesi of Stanislaus County Farm Bureau with some of the preparations operations have to do when hiring from the program. So in addition to getting folks here, paying them that higher rate, you are also responsible for housing and a meal uh, per diem. So when you're looking at this program, you have to take those things um, you know, into consideration. Uh, you're also providing daily transportation so that they can get to and from work. So it's, it's very, I would argue, uh, intimidating program to look at. And in the past, not widely used in California. You probably find a higher concentration of H-2A being utilized uh, in the Midwest and the Southern states, just due to uh, the ability to provide housing, right? Housing here, as we know, is very expensive in California. And we grow different products here, right? Our commodities here are very different than what you're seeing in the Midwest. And I would argue that in California, we are always harvesting something, right? The H-2A program in its essence is temporary. Folks can only be here for a certain amount of time before they have to have what they call like a touchback. They have to go home and then go through the process again. And that's, that's something that has always been a struggle for California growers. When you think about the products that we grow, um, sometimes we need folks here uh, more frequently. The other thing, is with our dairies, right? California has a huge dairy industry, and that job, as you well know, Danielle, is not seasonal, right? We are milking cows every day. Stay tuned as we'll have more on this later in today's show, but right now, here's Agnet West, Brian German. The requested appeal for Ag Order 4.0 has still not received any action. Executive Director of the Monterey County Farm Bureau, Norm Groot, said growers are still expected to comply with the challenging requirements of the order while they hope for some kind of moderation from the appeals process. What we're still looking at is a rather daunting process for everyone to manage and certainly not without cost. So it's going to be very challenging to start ratcheting down that use of nitrogen and not really have a good game plan or alternative in place. And we have requested this appeal immediately after the order was instituted in April of 2021. And so we're now coming up on two years of this appeal sitting before the state board with no action. And so we have not chosen at this point to pursue a stay or stop some of these requirements. So yes, everything is in effect at this point and growers need to comply fully with Ag Order 4.0. Bringing new viable raisin varieties to the market can be a lengthy process. 
Ranch manager for Marthadol Enterprises, Austin Hubble, said their work with varieties such as Supreme and Raise One are important projects for the industry as a whole and that grower trials and participation in the development process is critical. When it takes a number of years, it takes a great length of time to fully breed, develop, vet, and release to the public a great variety. And so these things don't happen overnight. And so therefore, the more people we can have helping work on these projects and and vet these projects, sometimes the better. Sometimes that's not always just my call alone because there are other entities involved in this project. But nevertheless, the more people we have collectively working to further the raisin industry, the better off we all are. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the drought of 2022 significantly lowered levels in some key U.S. waterways, making it difficult to ship commodities to ports. Mike Steenhook, executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, says some much-needed precipitation has started water levels rising once again. Meaningful precipitation continued to occur over the past several months, which has made a significant impact on water levels throughout the inland waterway system. When you look at Memphis, Tennessee, for example, which was arguably one of the ground zero locations for the low water conditions last fall, we're currently at 10 and a half feet of water depth in relation to the gauge. Last year at this time, we were at 19 feet, so we're below where we were last year. But just to give that some perspective, in, in late October, we were at almost a negative 11 feet. We're easily 20 plus feet better now than we were in late October. So that's a a significant increase. While levels have begun to rise, there is still a ways to go to get back to normal levels in the inland waterway system. We have returned to a healthy degree of normalcy, but it won't take a lot of sustained dry conditions to all of a sudden tip us back into low water conditions, which can impact navigation, particularly in that critical area of St. Louis to Cairo, Illinois. Cairo is significant because that's where the Ohio River meets up with the Mississippi River and provides a big influx of water into the system. So that St. Louis to Cairo area can be susceptible to low water conditions. Steenhook says levels got so low in spots that ships were getting stuck in the riverbed while trying to head south. Some of these vessels had to be dug out or just simply had to wait until water levels rose. And so they were just sitting there with soybeans or other agricultural products waiting for water levels to rise. That was something that 
was a real challenge last year. And then we had sediment buildup or shoaling at certain stretches of the river, which resulted in navigation having to stop or was significantly curtailed. So there was a lot of dredging activity that was occurring and continues to occur. While levels aren't quite where shippers want them to be, he says goods are moving regularly up and down the waterways for now. We're seeing some really good movement on the river right now, and so our export volumes are very comparable, a little bit even higher this year versus the same period last year. That's obviously really, really good news. But again, I think the concern is we don't have a lot in the tank. We don't have this big margin that we can enjoy. So if we did have a sustained period of dry weather, it could really tip us back into lower water conditions, which would then impede navigation. But right now, the reports that I'm getting, particularly from the export facilities down in the New Orleans area, is they really are back to a healthy degree of normalcy. Meanwhile, wet weather is causing problems for some South American crops. Brazil's soybean harvest is a little over one-third complete, and the country is set to produce a very large crop. However, getting there is proving challenging. Dr. Michael Cordonier, an agronomist with Soybean and Corn Advisor, says rains are slowing progress. Brazil is also expecting a big corn crop, but rain is making it difficult to get into the ground. It's going to be planted late. So if you plant that corn late, then you hope for an extended rainy season. Normally the rains in late April, early May. But if you plant your corn late into March, you want to hope for rain to extend through the end of May because if not, your corn's going to run out of moisture. And in Argentina, it's a different problem as crops continue to struggle under intense heat. Northern Argentina was like 105 to 108 earlier the week. South American crops have a big impact on the need for and value of U.S. crops. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, consumer demand in China is returning as COVID wave eases and residents are responding to the government's elimination of most of the COVID-related restrictions. According to a story from John Harris, China's red meat demand is poised for a nice rebound. After easing of restrictions, a COVID wave quickly moved through China at the start of the year. Now that the wave has eased, Chinese consumers are quickly returning, according to U.S. Meat Export Federation China Director Polly Zhou. It's not only the food service, it's all the related sectors like you know, uh, hotel and accommodations, um, passenger logi- uh, transportations, um, yeah, and uh, retailers and the movies, they're all coming back. So this is uh, all good sense. And those consumers are returning with significant spending power, according to USMEF Senior Vice President of Asia Pacific, Joel Haggard. So we're starting this year on a really positive footing because you have this economy that's going to bounce back. The Chinese government is going to stimulate the economy to, to bring back that GDP level. The consumers are going to be out wanting to spend. Their accumulated savings last year grew by... Um, a few trillion dollars, just unprecedented. They're going to want to spend that money. They're still pulling out of it as of um, this early February time period, but going into Q2, everyone is expecting really a a full return to normalcy. That brings a new strategy focused more on the consumer, according to USMEF Asia Pacific Vice President Jihei Yang. We don't know that exactly how the product flow into the market. We don't know the exact the channel that U.S. product is flowing in to the uh, end users in uh, China market. So my strategy in China is to mapping out 
how the flow of uh, the product flows from the exporters to the importers to the distributors to the end users eventually and then try to understand the flow and the uh, the distribution channel and then identify the uh, the needs of the individual segment that we can address for more visit usmef.org for the us meat export federation i'm john harris thanks john and in other news the national milk producers federation recently released a statement about the record dairy exports they note that for the third consecutive year u.s dairy farmers have proven how their dedication to innovation and sustainability leadership increasingly have made them the world's provider of choice for nutritious dairy products in both value and in volume they noted that u.s sales are at all-time highs and in 2022 a record percentage of U.S. milk production was exported overseas. This happened despite the headwinds that exporters battled last year, which included supply chain challenges, a lack of new trade agreements to establish more level playing fields abroad, and other barriers to trade and threatened to upend progress. If you'd like to learn more about this, go to the National Milk Producers Federation website, nmpf.org. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. How are GMO plants made? First, scientists look for a desired trait in a plant, animal, or even bacteria. It could be a trait like resistance to drought, insects, or viruses. Then they copy the gene that contains that trait and insert it into the DNA of the plant they want to improve. Scientists then grow that plant to see if it adopts the desired trait. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. A big-name chef is now the face of a popular tree nut. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. World-renowned chef Martin Yan is joining forces with American pistachio growers as a global brand ambassador. The news comes just ahead of the Pistachio Industry Annual Conference in Carlsbad, California, where Yan is slated to teach more than a 1,000 pistachio farmers how to prepare his trademark Kung Pao chicken with pistachios themselves. With a career spanning over four decades, Chef Yan has traveled around the world, sharing the best of Chinese and American culture, food, and tips for personal enrichment with multiple generations of audiences. His grand vision is shaped from experiences working on over 3,500 culinary and travel TV shows, 32 cookbooks, and several restaurants in North America and Asia. As a global brand ambassador, Yan will lead cooking demonstrations, participate in media events, and engage with consumers on social media platforms around the globe. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This may be a short trading week, but there's plenty of action now until Friday as trading resumes on Wall Street in New York and LaSalle Street in Chicago. Stock market has been under pressure with a combination of strong economic data and comments from various Federal Reserve board members strongly hinting their job is not done yet regarding interest rates. The Dow closed lower for the third consecutive week last week. That's the longest losing streak since September. 
And keep an eye on the Core Personal Consumption Expenditures Index comes late week. That PCE is not talked about a lot, but that index is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. Meanwhile, on LaSalle Street in Chicago, grain and livestock traders await data from USDA this Thursday and Friday, the 99th annual Ag Outlook Forum. AgriLiquid will be at the upcoming Commodity Classic in Orlando early March. Look for them at the trade show, booth number 2749-2749, AgriLiquid. This is the Bottom Line Report. Superior Livestock's recent video auction showed continued strong demand for feeder cattle, 38,000 500 head were offered from 25 states, giving a good example across the country of demand. Prices were 5 to $7 higher, and some areas $10 higher. Wean calves were more steady. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. Brian Tambari, Productivity Plus Program Manager at CNH Industrial Capital, says they can help to simplify a farmer's purchasing process. Case IH's captive finance partner, CNH Industrial Capital, offers a line of credit called Productivity Plus. This line of credit can be used for qualifying parts, service, inspections, and rentals, putting all your Case IH purchases and services in one place. Productivity Plus is specifically designed with farmers in mind, with specific offers for the full range of seasonal farming needs. Productivity Plus account holders also have access to exclusive offers and flexible payment terms. Productivity Plus can also help keep farmers organized. Productivity Plus helps farmers simplify, save time, and stay organized by putting all your purchases in one place under one system. That means easier tracking with one billing statement and due date, making accounting simple. Also, everyone you work with, from those in the call center to equipment servicing, are part of the CNH industrial family, which means no third-party outsourcing. He says the program allows you more day-to-day flexibility on the farm. Running a farm is hard work and a significant investment. We want our customers to have flexibility with their time and cash flow. By simplifying your purchasing process, you can dedicate focus to other areas of your operation and plus up your productivity. To learn more about Productivity Plus and how to sign up, talk with your local Case IH dealer or visit mycnhistore.com and click Financing. Again, Brian Tambari is with the Productivity Plus program at CNH Industrial Capital. Chad Smith reporting. U.S. agricultural goods of interest to Japanese consumers. Ryan Brewster of the Foreign Agricultural Services discusses current and potential food and farm products of interest to Japan. Among those to be highlighted as part of an upcoming USDA-led ag trade mission to that market. The United States provides a really diverse mix of products to Japan. Japan has a really well-developed food, retail, restaurant market, and the population there really demands high-quality, high-value agriculture and food products. So right now, we have a mix of products that ranges from corn, soybean, wheat, to high-value beef, veal, pork, and poultry products. We're also seeing that there's a real demand for processed products, so processed fruits, craft beers, distilled spirits, consumer-oriented products. Those are some of the things that we're looking at. Additionally, one of the things that we want to highlight are tree nuts, dairy products, particularly cheese, condiments, sauces, and other prepared products as well. Brewster goes on to discuss the U.S.-Japan trade deal and a rise in agricultural exports. 
What that's done is it's provided preferential treatment for a lot of U.S. agriculture and food products that will be able to enter Japan either duty-free or preferential rates. And so we see that the opportunity for U.S. ag products, while it has already been great, is growing in Japan. Last year in 2022, the United States was Japan's top supplier of agriculture products. The United States exported over $14 billion worth of product to Japan in 2022. And we see that actually increasing in the future. It's increased quite a bit since pre-COVID, and we like to think that has a lot to do with the trade agreement that we put into place in 2019. For more information on the trade missions, visit www.fas.usda.gov or email trademissions at usda.gov. And in more agriculture news, here's Agnet West, Brian German. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. It's one of several ways the Agriculture Department is helping hemp growers understand the economics of this quick-growing industry. We, at the Agricultural Marketing Service, by issuing this weekly hemp market news report, are bringing the hemp industry in alignment with more established traditional ag commodities. AMS's Bill Richmond says the new weekly National Hemp Report, which debuted last month, resembles the hundreds of specific commodity reports issued by USDA Market News. Information currently includes details such as pricing around hemp retail and human food products and imports of hemp materials into the U.S. Feedback continues to be gathered by AMS to improve the National Hemp Report for user benefit. Yet, feedback has been positive. One of the things that we heard very quickly from the industry is that they are excited to have a free, unbiased set of data that they did not have access to before. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. More than 50% of Americans think that estate planning is at least somewhat important, but only 33% have a will or living trust. Estate planning is even more important for farmers as it decides the future of the farm, according to AARP, Oklahoma State Director Sean Voskel. Sound estate planning can ensure the farm continues operating beyond your lifetime or that the assets are passed down or sold in a manner of your choice. Without a good estate plan, you risk a lengthy process for your loved ones who may not also agree with each other. One of the best estate planning options, Voskel says, is creating a trust. When you pass away, the taxman isn't the only one who can take a bite out of the assets that you leave behind. 
Whether it's cash, real estate, retirement money, or other funds, inherited assets can suddenly come up for grabs in a number of scenarios when creditors and others come calling. Establishing a trust is not only a key way to skip probate court, it can also prevent the assets you've spent a lifetime accumulating from going to predators who might slap your heirs with lawsuits. Voskel says it's also important to title bank accounts and assets properly. If you own joint assets or name beneficiaries on your accounts and assets, a creditor cannot seize what you leave behind. Instead, the money will go directly to whoever is listed on the accounts. But for the unsuspecting who haven't titled their assets properly, there are pitfalls. It's best to talk to an expert to ensure you have done everything correctly during the estate planning process. Learn more Thursday night at 9 p.m. Central Time on RFD TV or online at aarp.org forward slash aarp live. Michael Clements reporting. Whether it is a commercial freshwater fish operation or a body of water on property used for recreation, ponds offer opportunity to cast a line and spend time fishing. Chuck Sikra of University of Florida Extension adds, Ponds vary a lot both in how they're built and what they're used for, but they can all provide tremendous fishing opportunities for people. There are several kinds of both natural and man-made ponds, some you might be familiar with, perhaps even as a favorite fishing hole. For examples of natural ponds, there could be really shallow, kind of weedy ponds, maybe housing northern pike, yellow perch, bass, bluegill. Up in Michigan, they had sinkhole ponds, which formed by glaciers. They were really deep, often had trout in them, sometimes bass, bluegills. Down south, we have sinkhole ponds where the ground collapses and we end up with a deep pond. Lots of shallow cypress ponds, beaver ponds, often support trout on small streams, maybe bass, bluegill. Man made ponds include Impoundments where people maybe dam up a small watershed or a small stream, spring run, and it, it's nice because we can manipulate the water levels. And then there's a lot of dugout ponds where in Texas I worked on stock tanks where on the side of a hill they would dig out a pond, take the dirt, build a small levee, and then as water runs down the hill they have a pond used for watering livestock but also can provide some good fishing opportunities. A lot of places we have high water table right below the ground, so if you scoop out the dirt, your pond is sitting in that surficial water table. With that type of pond, you often don't have any way to control water levels. Sikra points out that man-made ponds are primarily constructed for aquaculture purposes. Those ponds are built so a seine could be pulled through and fish either partially harvested or totally harvested. So the advantage of man-made ponds is really towards the aquaculture fish production standpoint. Somebody wanting a few ponds to grow, say, some catfish or maybe up north. Where generally, trout are done more in raceways, flowing off in concrete or long shallow ponds where the water flows down through from a spring. A growing number of ponds are becoming part of agritourism operations. In Florida, we have a lot of 20, 30, 40 acre quote unquote ponds. People don't fish them a lot, so they may actually lease them to a small group of people, a family, just like people lease hunting lands for say deer hunting, quail hunting, and restrict who can have access to it. But we also have ponds that people will charge so many dollars per day and the public can come in and drop money off. Often it's a mailbox and go fish. They're limited how many fish they can keep. And then we have the more intensive where people start 
stocks, they catfish and people come in and they fish and they pay by the pound or they pay a certain amount per day and they get to keep a couple, three fish. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. And now for part two of my conversation with the CFO of Virtual Nurturies and Stanislaus County Farm Bureau's Anna Genesi. Jim, this might be a question for you. Anna mentioned some of the process that you have to go through as far as putting an ad in and making sure that the folks who are running the program know that you're you're kind of doing everything that you can here um, and you ran out of options and you need workers from out of state in order to, you know, help you out. So, you know, you're crossing all those boxes off. But my husband, as Anna mentioned, we're in the dairy industry, but we also grow almonds and pistachios. And I remember when we were putting in our orchard, my husband would contact a farm labor contractor. And within a couple of weeks or so, he was able to get some workers out to either help help plant the trees or, you know, place the stakes out, roll out the drip irrigation, whatever task he needed to do. He was able to do that in a couple of weeks. But um, I imagine, and you could probably speak to this, getting workers internationally would take a bit more prep work, work, as Anna said, but uh, also just a long time, months of work, I would assume. Can you kind of walk me through that process? Certainly. We we do a budget uh, each year, and because of the requirements, the seasonal requirements of our business, we have to plan well in advance what we're going to do. And I know you can't see it, but on the wall behind me uh, are the last two years of our plans for planting. And through a combination of you know what Mother Nature requires and then complying with the government requirements the state of California has for bare root nurseries, we have to start planning in May of each year what we're going to plant six months later or five months later in October. And then we're going to grow those trees for 12 to 15 months and then sell them the year after that. So we're, and that's if it's a a one-year tree, like a, uh, an almond or a peach or a nectarine. If it's a two-year tree, like a walnut, now it's a 27-month window. And so we have to plan out well in advance uh, what we're going to be growing. And as part of that, we also take a look at what will our labor requirements be. And so we have a seasonal, in, in our bare root business, we have two big busy seasons. and uh, 
One of them is when we start budding the trees in April and May, um, that's like lighting the fuse. Because mm-hmm. once you've budded that thing, it just takes off. And that's what you want it to do. And you, what you're trying to do is grow the biggest, strongest, healthiest tree you possibly can before winter comes and it goes dormant. And that's when you can harvest a bare root tree without without harming it. If you, Like any other plant, if you pull it out of the ground while it's growing, that's like pulling a weed. You just killed it. And so uh, our potted operation is a little bit different. It has a little bit uh, longer window for everything. It's a little easier to manage in that regard, but the trees are smaller. And the majority of our customers still want the biggest trees, um, and that's so that's what drives our bare root business. But as part of our budgeting each year, we're looking at what we're going to plant, what we're going to grow, how many acres that's going to require, and then how many people it's going to require to do all of the tasks associated with growing that tree, from planting it to budding it to uh, suckering to weeding to irrigation, uh, the various sprays that are required for pest controls, uh, staking that tree uh, if it needs to be staked to keep it straight, and then taking all that apart at the end of the season to get it ready to be dug out of the ground, graded, and uh, sent to our customers. So we have a a process for putting that budget together, and and part of that is labor. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned that the needs of California agriculture is different than that of other states. Um, Jim mentioned that some of the trees that his nursery produces go to states like the Carolinas and Georgia. So are those states similar? And if they are, or if they aren't, how are how is California agriculture and the needs of California producers different than that of other states? Yeah, so um, let me circle back really quick. I While you and, and Jim were chatting, I looked it up. Uh, how many uh, H-2A workers are we utilizing here in the United States? Uh, turns out um, California is in the top 10 U.S. states utilizing H-2A workers. They're coming in at number four. Um, this data that I'm looking at is from the Department of Labor 2020, and it's via that uh, information, they are showing 25,000 workers in California were utilized in 2020, according to the um, U.S. Department of Labor. That's so, a lot of workers. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, too, that, um, you know, we are amongst the top 10 states using it, um, using this this opportunity. I would, I would say, Danielle, we are, California is unique in, um, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard this before. Like we grow over 400 commodities here in the state, right? We've got these amazing soils, this Mediterranean climate, um, God willing, access to water. Um, And so we are not, you know, corn and oats, wheat, soybeans, right? Um, And and our, our growing partners in the Midwest and the South have done a great job with mechanization. but some of the commodities we grow here can't utilize that level of mechanization, right? We are still um, thinning and pruning um, by hand. Uh, in a lot of places, we are in some cases picking by hand because we're dealing with things like strawberries and peaches and 
and blueberries and 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 commodities that we don't want to see bruised or damaged um, in that picking process, right? I mean, our our customers, God love them, are very fickle, <laughs> <laughs> and if something doesn't look nice on the on the grocery store um, shelf, they're not going to buy it. Yeah. So um, so you know, in in places where we can, I think we have mechanized, but some of the commodities we do still need that human touch. Um, and I think that's what makes us so unique. And I feel blessed to be in this state um, and that we're able to produce the things that we do. But it means at certain periods of time, we need a group of folks who aren't afraid to work, who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty um, and and are patient and thoughtful enough with their their skill set that they are doing um you know, thoughtful thinning or pruning or picking. In this case, you know, Jim mentioned budding. Like these are these are not skills that anybody just walking off the street has. Um, so I would argue that California is very different in its needs for labor. The other thing that makes H2A kind of cumbersome um, is when you go through the process of going through the Department of Labor and 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 making this contract, you have to guarantee a certain level of work, right? Number of hours that each person is, is um, guaranteed. Um, and so, and I know Jim will, will speak to this, but that, that's a worry for an employer, right? What if there's some sort of crash in commodity pricing or, right. or some sort of or the weather you knocks have... you out? Gosh, folks yes. in Monterey, they're yeah. out 40 to 60 days right now. Yes. Yeah. So what do you do when you have a contract in place that says you have to guarantee 75% of the work that you promised? The other thing that we see here in California is we see a, a very mobile um, workforce, right? Through the use of farm labor contractors, we are sending labor where needed. Um, H2A requires that you map out specifically where that person is going to be working. And so those, those would be some of the kind of hiccups or hangups that I see with, with H2A um, for a nursery setting might be great, right? You guys are here, you're, you're, you're not, you're not moving, but with a, maybe a, a peach grower. Okay. Well, we finished work in this field, but now I need you to move you to my Fresno farm. Um, H2A doesn't allow for that or doesn't allow for it very easily. Um so those are things that need to be considered uh, before, you know, you engage in, in an H-2A contract. Um, I love, Jim can talk about this too, is they've actually utilized H-2A through a farm labor contractor. And so they've been able to, you know, work the, the system um, so that it works for the commodities here. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. 
The Sustainable Food and Farm Conference is coming up next month at Sierra College in Grass Valley. The first day of the event will be a field day taking place on Friday, March 3rd, beginning at 10 in the morning. The field day will cover on-farm composting and will offer a closer look at organic matter at Fulcrum Farm. The second day of the conference will take place on Saturday, March 4th, and will consist of various keynotes and workshops. Workshop sessions will cover topics such as demystifying nitrogen management decisions on organic farms and solutions for small meat producers. After lunch, two other workshop sessions will be taking place going over things like high-altitude farming, building a beef market, and resources available from NRCS. Javier Zamora will be discussing the essentials for a successful farm business during the closing keynote presentation. Information on the event is available at foodandfarmconference.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. The EPA proposes new rules for pesticide exposure protection. The Environmental Protection Agency announced a proposed rule that would improve and modernize the pesticide application exclusion zone requirements. These requirements are part of the 2015 Agricultural Worker Protection Standard, and the agency is proposing to reinstate several provisions from that standard. Among the changes, the revised standard includes a new provision requiring agricultural employers to keep workers and all others out of an area called an application exclusion zone. The AEZ is an area surrounding an ongoing pesticide application. A previous rule change limited the AEZ to 25 feet in 2020. However, the proposed rule will change that to 100 feet for fine sprays. The distance will stay 25 feet from medium or larger sprays when sprayed from a height greater than 12 inches from the soil surface. The rule change would also apply the AEZ beyond an establishment boundaries and when individuals are within easements on a producer's land. An AFB contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.